Okay, now I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. All right, you ready to bring us in, Dave? You remember how to do this? Barely. I'm hoping it'll just come back to me like riding a bike. Like ride a bike. All right. Okay. You ready? Ready. Yeah, Starting in three, two, one. Pausing for the convenience of the editors. Hello, and welcome to the season premiere of season five of the Silmarillion Film Project. That's right. Uh, you may be surprised to hear, but I am Dave Kale coming. <laughs> yeah, that's not Trish. Trish did suddenly get a lower voice. That's you should right. start with "Let me introduce myself" or something. Yeah. <laughs> After my- Back from my self-imposed exile in parenthood, I am, I'm here, I'm ready to talk about the Silmarillion, and I am so excited about this season. So let me introduce the co-hosts who are, uh, have been here even in my absence, Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien maven. It's so good to I talk know, to I you. Know. So good to have you back from paternity leave, Dave. Uh, So you've uh, you've you've survived and all. Has everyone survived? Everyone's doing okay there with the whole adjustment to the new sibling and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's been a lot. There's the adjustment to the new sibling, which on the whole went really well. We went for there was about a month there where I was uh, sleeping on a a fold out mattress on the floor outside of Wally's room. Right. (laughs) But right. As I was telling you guys off the air, we've re-sleep trained and I'm I'm now back sleeping in an adult bed. So that's nice. (laughs) That's exciting. Yay. (laughs) It's a major step right there. Yeah. Now we're dealing with, you know daycare being closed and uh, uh, change in schedule and uh, trying to work from home. Uh, But uh, those are all, these are all adventures that I know are familiar to you, Corey. So you're probably unsympathetic. Well, no, no, very sympathetic, very sympathetic, (laughs) but uh, yeah, it is, uh, it is a, a fun challenge. I remember several times in my early parenting days, I I remember one time attempting, uh, I had my kid and I had, uh, I think this was Matthias I had in a backpack while I was lecturing one day, like I was trying to lead class discussion and I had him in a backpack uh, and he, he started getting fussy. So I started feeding him over my shoulder, like <laughs> while I was conducting class. Uh, I, I was able to multitask, my students less so. Um, but, uh, glad things are, things are evening out there, uh, in your household, Dave and, uh, and Trish all is well with you down in Texas. As well as can be. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, it's not that different. I mean, I basically have been practicing for this particular occurrence for about seven years now. (laughs) So, you know, no worries. There, there are many of us, you know, who are like social distancing, not a problem. Not like, a problem. I can, I, it's like second nature. So, yeah. Welcome to my world. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 good. Yeah. I mean, and of course, yeah, with, uh, you know, Signum operating remotely uh, since its conception. Yeah. You know, we've already uh, we're a little ahead of this uh, curve on that one, too. So that's right. Um, so yeah, you know things have been uh, fairly relatively normal in my world. My kids are doing, uh, kids are doing school from home. So and they, I gotta say, their school's doing a great job. Actually, I'm really pleased with their school's uh, uh, synchronous uh, online classes so far. So, um, so that was uh, that's been cool. Well, that's great. Yeah, yeah, they've been doing great. Um, 
Anyway, so um, welcome. I know everyone is uh, interested in, in having some uh, things to, to think about and work on and talk about uh, uh, during this time. So uh, let us jump into uh, things, or nearly so. This, of course, is season five of the Silmarillion Film Project. And I got to say, uh, although, you know, we joked a lot and it's it's not like i never intended to continue this film film project to this point that's not of course i always intended it but there's a difference between intending it and believing it will actually happen um <laughs> and there's a lot of uh there's a you know kind of looking at this opening slide that says season five on it um is kind of awesome actually you know this this makes this um uh one of the not one of I mean, I think this has to be now the longest running program we've ever done. Um, I've ever done in the history of my podcast or of uh, Signum and Mythgard. Um, it's, I mean, Riddles in the Dark was a mere three years in comparison. And, uh, you know, this has been... Uh, That's true. Uh, this has been... That's right. ...already substantially longer than that. Not just four seasons, but more than that in terms of years, actually. So, uh, calendar years. Uh, so, anyhow... This has been uh, great fun. Looking forward to continuing the adventure. Uh, and this year, uh, this season really is an exciting time. Last season, last season was the one that we we talked about being really excited to get to. And it's not like we weren't, but we were also kind of joking a little bit. Because, like, last season was the, um, the kind of... Uh, running joke of the film film project, right? When we finally got to of Balerion and its realms, everyone's least favorite, most boring chapter of the Silmarillion. <laughs> um, and uh, so we'd been joking about like, Oh man, like can't w- when we get to of Balerion and its realms, that's going to be, you know, must watch TV right there. Um, <laughs> uh, and of course, like it was really fun and we did great with season four. I think our season four was really excellent. And of course now moving from that and, uh, and now coming into season five where things start Start getting, you know, the 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 all of a sudden the the character panel explodes right as we uh, bring in all of the uh, all of all of the men from across the mountains. So um, uh, lots of stuff. So tonight uh, there are two things that we're going to be looking to accomplish tonight. First is to sort of do a review of our um, discussion points. Right, what are the things that we need to do? Let's you know do an overview. Uh, thinking about what we're going to need to accomplish, what are the stories that we're going to want to do uh, and be thinking through what that's going to mean this year. That's one thing. And the second thing we need to do is remind Dave about what happened in season four. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can do both of those things. Um, uh, but yes, you're right, Stephen. We're also, uh, we should also really savor season five because it is going to be the last season up until the final episode. The first 12 episodes of season five will be the last long stretch of time in which we have a comparatively low mortality rate among our main characters. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to start, um, we're going to start <laughs> bidding a fond farewell to lots of people fairly quickly. Uh, once we get to the end, to the very last episode uh, of season third, of, of, of episode 13 of season five. And then of course, really from here on out, essentially. Um, but um, now it's true, Marie, you're right. We're going to lose a fair number of humans 
to old age. Like that, that, that is going to happen, but it's uh, uh, not quite exactly the same as what will be coming in future seasons. Um, but uh, you're right, Brian. It is indeed all downhill from here for the elves. So uh, before we get too deep in, just a couple quick announcements. Um, uh, the first, of course, like normally I'm announcing our upcoming moots. That's been put on hiatus, of course, under the circumstances. We've had to postpone uh, two of our regional moots, both Sunshine Moot and Magnolia Moot, uh, have had to be pushed back. We don't have new dates on that. It's kind of hard to reschedule things when we don't know what's going to happen, so we're still kind of waiting on that. Um, as of now, by the way, Myth Moot is still... We're still planning Myth Moot. Um, we have not canceled Mythmoot. Uh, we're not planning to cancel Mythmoot, unless obviously things continue and, and the lockdowns carry. We're not going to do Mythmoot um, AMA, as my wife would say, against medical advice. Uh, but, um, but again, so long as, uh, you know, we'll wait and see where things look at the end of June, and who knows. Um, the thing I would say about that is that Registering for Mythmoot is a, a low-risk proposition. Needless to say, we're um, going to be very freely refunding people who have purchased tickets and can't end up coming even at the last minute and for whatever reason, really. So, um, you know, no no concerns about that. We're going to be doing complete refunds for uh, for folks. I think we'll have to keep, like, a couple bucks to cover the fees and stuff, but it's very... I mean, it's like a 99% refund uh, on... Uh, on um, Mythmoot tickets. So anyway, that just to let you know that that, as of now, still happening. Um, Nick, a remote Mythmoot is a possibility. If we do end up having to cancel, it's certainly something we'll think about. I have to say, I have been very resistant to um, doing a remote, to planning a remote moot or replacing any of our moots with remote gatherings. Not, of course, because I have anything against synchronous online remote gatherings, but because... That's what we do every day. <laughs> like the whole point of moots is that they're different from our normal broadcast thing, and uh, we can do it. But like, uh, it's just it it's not the same. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, Mike, you are right. If we uh, when we do reschedule the moots, we will definitely have to call them remoots. Uh, I completely agree with you about that. So um, anyhow, we will see what happens. But for now, we are, as of now, we are still planning uh, on Mythmood happening and we'll see. The other thing that I did want to draw your attention to is Signum's online teaching mentorship program. This is something that we've put together uh, just in the last couple weeks uh, here at Signum. We know a lot of people are teaching online and I know, I mean, I've got friends who are, you know, teaching in, in local schools here who are teaching online with very little in the way of support or guidance uh, and kind of learning by trial and error as they go. And I know people are doing a really good job and, and uh, uh, really sort of working through things. But um, at Signum, of course, we've been doing synchronous online education for you know more than 10 years and would be really happy to help folks. Um, a lot, you know, in the very first wave, when people started first started teaching online, uh, you know, here a couple of weeks back, um, the main thing that everyone was focused on was like how to use the software, right? Like, get, and 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 most of the training programs that I know of, again from friends, uh, and you know, hearing from friends and friends of friends, most of the training that people have been getting through their schools, when they were getting any, uh, has been tech training basically for like how to again how to use the software, which is great. I mean, it's important. Don't get me wrong, um, but there's a lot more to it than that. 
that. And in particular, the, the, the process, it's one thing to say we're going to hold online sessions for a couple of weeks. But if you're looking at, you know, between now and the end of the year, you've got to deliver all of your curriculum and achieve your learning goals for the next couple months, uh, you know, online, taking those goals that you already had um, set and, you know, coming through on those um, in your new online medium. That kind of conversion is non-trivial. Um, online education is awesome. I'll be the first one to tell you that. But I'll also acknowledge isn't the same thing as teaching in the classroom. And so the, the, the ways that one designs lessons and, and thinks through teaching and student interactions, it's just it's 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 not the same. Different things work better uh, in the online environment. So we're offering this mentorship service in which basically, you know, uh, uh, either I or one of our uh, other Signum folks um, will come and meet with the folks, not virtually will virtually meet, of course, with your people um, uh, like the teachers in your department or, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the people at your school or it can be non-school groups like churches and uh, stuff like that as well. Uh, just to kind of help you think through, you know, listen to you guys explain your um, your own goals and, and the things and the challenges that you're facing and help you think through what are some good approaches uh, to doing this? How can you best accomplish your teaching goals? online. Um, so anyway, that's the goal of the mentorship program. We do have to charge a little bit for it because it takes time, you know, a, a good chunk of time from our people, but we're, we're, you know, offering it at cost as, as, as cheap as we possibly can, because we really want to be able to make the service available to as many people as possible. We are offering it for both, uh, groups for, again, for like departments and schools and churches and things, um, you know, whole teams. And we're also offering it for individuals, um, at a, at a much lower rate. So anyway, just wanted to share that that's happening um, and uh, encourage you to talk if you're a teacher to talk to your uh, uh, to your to your principal or to your department chair or whatever um, and see if maybe you guys can take advantage of this because it's a uh, uh, you know we we just we'd love to help folks so all right those are the announcements and again you can find that at signumuniversity.org slash mentorship all right so season five all right so see the scope of season five. The one thing that we know already, because we've been talking about this for a while, as indeed I Did already... Did we do the review already? Did I well, miss the well, review? Well, that's kind of involved with this, really. Oh, we'll, okay. We'll, we'll do that okay. in the context of this. Uh, the okay. thing that we know is where we're going to end, right? That's usually the first thing that we've had to debate, right? Is like, where are we going to end? You know, what, where's... And this one was easy, right? The duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth is going to be the end of the, fi you know, the, the, of the final episode. Um, that's sort of obvious uh, here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that one's pretty clear um, up to the, you know, and and really like the Dagor Bragalach is one of those like sort of like epoch defining moments, right? That the idea of having that be the transition point between one season and the next was uh, was always pretty clear. So um, so that's, you know, that's sort of been the plan. So we're looking at one hundred and forty six years of the sun, according to the uh, uh, Silmarillion chronology. Um, that we're going to be covering during the course of season five. So season four ended with the attack of Glaurung and the marriage of Celeborn and Galadriel. Um, those, uh, those were the two major events of the final episode. We also did have like shots, uh, like the, the Gondolindrum moved in, right? So we had Gondolin established and the doors closed uh, of Gondolin. Uh, we of course built up um, Nargothrond as well. So the, the, 
discovery and um, you know the the message, the dream, the discovery, and the building of Nargothrond and Gondolin uh, were both of them uh, major features of the second half of uh, season four. Of course, the uh, the kind of internal drama of Galadriel and her developing relationship with Celeborn, culminating in their uh, wedding uh, in the final episode, was one of the major arcs of the entire season in season four. The front half of the season especially was focused on the drama of discovery, right? As the Sindar and especially Thingol, of course, were discovering um, the truth about the kinslaying. Right. Uh, the facts about the kinslaying and, of course, the bad guys also discovering this and helping uh, to foment, foment trouble uh, among the elves uh, by this. We also, of course, began the uh, the elf catch and release program. Right. We have uh, elves being kidnapped and brought in and enslaved. We saw some of them working in the mines. We saw uh, we had our first major uh, uh, character who was captured um, sort of uh, reconditioned, put under the spell of Bottomless Dread and re-released both to her own harm and the harm of her loved ones, Um, seeing, uh, setting the stage for the kind of even deeper distrust uh, and uncertainty and chaos that uh, Morgoth and Sauron are going to be fomenting as we move forward here, especially, I think, through season five. By the time we get post-Dagor Bragalach, um... It's still going to be an issue, but um, they're a little less covert after uh, they, meaning the bad guys, are a little less covert after they've already, you know, conquered half of Beleriand. So, um, but um, anyway, so uh, we and we ended, of course, uh, the very te- the the teaser at the end, the final uh, scene of the final episode was Finrod stumbling upon Beor and his men. I was a little hesitant about that, kind of wanting to save... You know, I didn't want to sort of spoil that, and I, I didn't. I wanted to, to save the discovery. Part of me wanted to save the discovery, at least like Finrod's role, um, uh, to the beginning of this season instead. Um, but what really won me over was the suggestion, and I, I'm forgetting whose suggestion it was, um, that um, we have basically we, we we end season five with the, the the whole thing from Finrod's perspective as he sees the men and he comes in and he grabs the harp and he starts playing and we just have them wake up and be amazed and then we cut uh after that and when we return at the at the beginning you know to men in season five we we return to it essentially from their point of view right when they wake up from their sleep and they see this elf lord playing their harp um so that we we sort of redo the whole thing from their point of view, and I thought that was that was a really cool idea. So seems seemed to me worth it to uh, uh, to kind of do that scene twice uh, in that way. Um, now, Chris Graham says we should open episode one with a flashback to the rising of the sun, so we can uh, the first rising of the sun, so we can witness the awakening of men. That's a really good question. Um, so we decided in season four that we were going to give several teasers um, that would suggest what was happening with men out in the east, out at Hildorian and elsewhere, um, how Melkor left uh, uh, Angband and went out east and, you know, brought the uh, the most of the men out there to to worship him and everything. Um, the sort of primary, maybe he was absent. Uh, Morgoth was personally absent through most of season four. Um, 
but we did have that one shot when we got the eclipse in like uh, episode um, nine or something like that. Um, the eclipse of the sun. And we did cut at the end of that episode to, you know, the, the, the spectacle of Morgoth darkening the sun and all of the men bowing down and worshiping him as he is sort of using that as a miracle to, uh, to, to demonstrate his godhood to them. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we gave some indicators about what was happening, but we decided that we were not going to track that. Um, we wanted to leave exactly what happened with Sauron and the men in the East a little bit of a mystery because, of course, when the men show up here in season five, they're not going to know exactly what happened. They're going to only have some um, ancient stories um, about uh, what occurred there. Um, So, and yes, exactly, Stephen, and them reluctant to talk about what they do know uh, about their past. Um, Exactly. So, so yeah. Okay. Um, So, the concept uh, that we had discussed in season four was starting season five, episode one, again, with that meeting from the men's perspective. Um, uh, and focusing on the, 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 the human side of things for a while. And then of course we end with Fingolfin and Morgoth and the death of Fingolfin. Um, and I would think of course the rescue of Fingolfin's body by, uh, Thorondor and, uh, the bearing away of his body, um, and its burial, uh, by Turgon. So, you know, I mean, there we have some, uh, excellent sort of elegiac moments for us to offer. I mean, it kind of, doesn't it sort of scream out for a kind of montage of mourning at the end, right? To see like all of the people weeping for the various people who are dead, uh, by the end of that, um, um, yeah, you know, by the end of that, um, thing by the end of that I mean by the end of the battle by the end of the end of that thing so yeah that thing you know Mont- by the end of that thing yeah that's it montage of mourning that's good montage of mourning that's it lots of people weeping and sad music um Phil it's dirge time dirge time yes we need a we definitely need uh you know mournful music but I think you know not just sad i mean do we want to have well you know can we what there'll be it'll be a really fun opportunity i think for philip to um work a lot of the themes that he's been developing Mm -hmm. right you know things like the doom theme and the the fall theme but also some of the hope stuff in there as well you know lots of uh really cool uh opportunities there i think um and i don't know marie was just asking about the theme yeah i uh you know I would think, um, so Phil, and, and for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking here to the person who's not here, but who will be listening later on. Um, uh, Philip Menzies, our, uh, film film composer who has been composing our themes and our scores, uh, for film film and doing such a wonderful job. And, um, uh, so I would say, Phil, we're going to need like an unnumbered tears theme, right? Oh Yeah like a theme which will be revealed in full at the near night Arnoidiad, perhaps. Um, but I mean, 
just yeah the 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 themes of so- of sorrow uh and th- you know that should be um that should definitely be something that um we oop ah, sorry accidentally hitting keys and moving through slides that's not good um anyway yeah so maybe this moment here uh at the end of this uh season is a time to kind of unveil the new uh, sorrow theme. Do we have a sorrow theme? I don't think we do. I sometimes forget which themes he's already done. Um, I know last season we called for one that he'd already made, for instance. Uh, but um, it just shows Phil's always anticipating our every desire, right? So, there we go. <laughs> okay. So, as I, um, as our slide asks at the end here, we know where we're starting and we know where we're ending. Those are a given. So we got to figure out what happens in the middle. So let's talk about the middle. All right. Here are things that need to happen. And as you can see, there's a lot of fine print on this page because really small font. There's a lot of stuff (laughs) that needs to happen. So squint and I'll read it. But in any case, okay. So um, we're trying to cram it all in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) These are grouped into four categories. So we've got the storylines of the men, right? Uh, we've got the three houses entering Beleriand, uh, forming various allegiances with the elves. Uh, we need hero stories for the four sort of um, kind of elder statesmen of those, right? Elder states persons, I should say, as half of them are female. Um, and of course, notice how we do not have to invent female characters here because half of them are already women. Um, uh, and, and these are Beor, Haleth, Hador, Lorendal, that is Hador, Goldenhead, um, and Andreth. Really important character for those of you who are unfamiliar with Andreth. Um, she is a character invented later. She's not in the published Silmarillion. Um, she's a character who was invented by Tolkien later on in the time after he'd written The Lord of the Rings. Um, and, uh, she appears in the, the sort of essay slash short story that Tolkien wrote called the Athrabeth, uh, uh, Andreth and Finrod. And it is, um, the debate basically more like dialogue, uh, between Andreth and Finrod. Um, so Andreth, wise woman of, you know, of, of the men, uh, talks with Finrod Felagand, um, and they have, it's it's an altogether remarkable piece. Um, the Athrabeth is one of my very favorite pieces. I mean, it would be in my very short list of um, of pieces to uh, um, uh, to uh, of like my, my favorite Tolkien pieces like of all time. Um, it's in Volume Ten of the History of Middle Earth, Morgoth's Ring, which by coincidence we are discussing right now in Mythgard Academy on Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. So um, we'll be getting to the Athrabeth in a couple months, about a month and a half to two months here from now. Um, uh, so sometime in end of May, beginning of June, we'll be talking about the Athrabeth in uh, Mythgard Academy. So I recommend if you want to if you want to read along and uh, and join in with that discussion, that would be great. But anyway, okay, so those are the four first characters that we need. And and then we have some other characters who are named um, and whom we, we we're going to want to integrate in some ways. Um, uh, Amlak, uh, and he's especially important. Um, he's the really interesting one 
uh, who is, he's opposed. So you may remember, uh, and of course I'm trusting that all of you uh, Silmarillion scholars have reread the section of the Silmarillion that season five is based on in anticipation of season five. We're, we've got about three chapters there from the chapter called Of Maeglin Through of the Ruin of uh, Doriath and the Death of Fingolfin. Is, is ba- that's basically the season five stuff. And um, uh, anyhow, so Amlach is the one who is opposed. They, they have the, their big debate about whether they should stay in Beleriand or whether they should just turn back around and go. And Amlach is the one who's initially opposed to staying, but he's the one who's not there. And somebody impersonates him at the at the debate, you know, at the at the the council meeting. Right. And, uh, and then he comes afterwards and discuss it and was like, I was never there. And then he swears fealty. Oh, did I say Doriath? Sorry, the ruin of Beleriand, of the ruin of Beleriand and the death of Fingolfin, not the ruin of Doriath. That's a later chapter, of course. Sorry, my apologies. Thank you for catching that, Marie. Um, anyway, Amlach and the, ends up uh, then entering the service, if I'm remembering correctly, of Mithros. So, um, so he has a, an interesting little story. Marach um, uh, and Marach, By the way, I, I think so, we can make some real hay with that storyline. Oh yeah, that 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 storyline needs to happen, right? I mean, it's it's. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty cool. I totally agree with that. It can be like a kind of a, a like a weird, creepy sort of uh, horror or thriller type storyline. Just like kind of like, you know, a little little side story in the middle of kind of the more epic um, fantasy stuff that we're doing. I, I, I'm excited about that one. Yeah, definitely. And it, it really follows on well with a lot of the kind of intrigue and espionage stuff that we were already doing in season four. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've established Sauron and Thuring Gwethel as like the super spy intelligence gathering mess with people with the elves heads, you know, team there. Um, so lots of opportunity for us to work that. Uh, Mike Hockstad says he's got a, uh, a notion to greatly expand on Amlock and in, and impersonations, making a major subplot. I think that'd be really cool. Uh, definitely open, uh, to those suggestions there. Yeah. Stephen. um, Stephen and Tony are both suggesting that the impersonator uh, could be Sauron uh, himself. I think that's very, um, um, very likely. That seems to me a very fruitful uh, uh, line and possibility there. So, so yeah, totally we need to do that. Uh, Marek and Malak, those are the ones who led that group of people over, but they don't really do very much, so they're kind of a little bit fungible, I think. Um there's uh, 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 Bereg, Magor, Haldad, and Haldar, who are, of course, the father and brother of Haleth, uh, who both of whom famously die, so that Haleth has to uh, uh, become heroic and take over. Uh, Boromir and Bregalas, who are uh, people between Beor, the head of that line, and then Barahir and Beren. Um, uh, uh, and of course, we've got Bara here. We need to have Bara here, who is the father of Baron, uh, and of course, who needs to famously rescue um, uh, uh, Finrod so that Finrod can swear his oath to him, which ends up leading him to help Baron. Um, uh, so yeah, there's 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 a bunch of folks. One of the things that I want to think about, we don't have to talk about this yet. We're going to come back to talking about the men in more detail later on, but. I've floated this idea before, and I would like to float it again. Um, we need to think about our time frames, of course, um, and what other things we need we need to accomplish as far as the passage of time is concerned in this season. Um, but uh, 
I personally would advocate some condensation here. Um, I think I would like to get rid of some intervening generations of folks um, because I don't think we need to introduce everybody. I, 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 especially people that we don't really have. Basically, the principle is simple. We're going to have a whole bunch of men that we have stories for and whose stories are really impactful in the, the, both in the whole the story as a whole um, and setting up future things and whose interactions with the elves are really important as far as, therefore, the characters and storylines we've already established. We need to focus on those stories that we're telling and not just complete the genealogies for the sake of being completionists about the genealogies, I think. Um, so folks like Boromir and Bregolas, I'm ready to be like... I have an idea. What about like Bara here being like the son or grandson of Beor? Can we do that? Like, is that all right? Um, do we need the intervening generations? This would mean if we did this and like, uh, similarly, like let's have hot or golden head, uh, be involved earlier on. And, uh, and then just move straight from him as is, is in fact true that, uh, Hurin is the grandson of Hador. Um, Let's just go, and or maybe even the sun. Like I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go crazy. Just um, you know, shortening for the sake of shortening. But again, like we need to enable ourselves to focus on the stories we want to tell and the characters we want to develop. Um, and if that means shortening the whole time frame, I think I'm fine with that. We'll see as we go through. Maybe something will come up that'll um, remind me of something else that we need. But I like really don't think that there's too much that's help that's happening in elf world uh that is in our elf plot lines which necessitates a whole bunch of time i think if we if we compress the timeline a little bit for the sake of uh uh trimming off a few extraneous human generations um i don't think the elvish storylines are going to suffer much um do you guys have any quick thoughts about that Mm, not me. I mean, I I actually see the I see the logic in that. I mean, if if we vote, I would vote to like consider that definitely to compress generations. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there may be some difficult choices to make. Some of them, again, I don't think are going to be that difficult. Honestly, like okay, like I understand. Um, Stephen and Marie are both saying Bregalas is present at the Dagor Bragalak and is killed in action. We can't get rid of him. Yeah, we can. We just got to replace him, right? But okay, let's say, for instance, Beor, one of the things about Beor, one of the defining elements of Beor's character is he's old, right? You know? So fine. Let's not make him the dead. Let's make him the granddad. Let's put a generation in between. What if we got Beor, right? Grandpa Beor. And then we've got, we can keep one of them, right? One of those in between. And then we've got, so Barahir is the grandson of Beor. So we've got Barahir, the grandson of Beor, and Baron, the great-grandson of Beor. And we've, that, that gives us a bonus generation so that we have a superfluous dad who can die in the Dagor Bragalak. Done, right? No problem. Um, so, I, you know, there, there are ways around some of these uh, kinds of issues, but... Um, uh, but anyway, I, I just, I'm, I'm 
But again, do, do we need the multiples there? Not really sure that we do. Um, so, and honestly, if I have to get rid of... I, can we... What about this? What about this? Can we just replace Bregalos? Seriously, is any, anyone personally attached to Bregalos? He barely gets a mention. Like, the, we're told literally nothing about him except that he dies, right? So that means, like, literally anybody named anything could die instead. Like, we just need a dude to die, right? Like, in the line of Baron leaving Bari here, right? Okay. But maybe it could be Boromir <laughs> because of the name, right? That'd be kind of fun, right? But it's okay. We don't, we can cut Boromir if you want to, uh, if you want to cut Boromir. Um, but, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we, we'll, we, we can, we can, we can sort it out, um, but uh, anyway, we'll 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 come back when we discuss the storylines of the men in more detail later on. I just wanted to float the idea because I know nobody likes to change things from the text, but I'm really feeling that our storylines are going to be. I mean, as you can, you see the size of the font on this page. Our storylines are going to be out of control as it is, right? Um, we need, we're going to want, we're going to need ways to make this more efficient if we're going to actually be able to, um, you know, tell compelling stories uh, there. Um, we we got to compress, folks. We got to compress. I, I, I really think, I think with these early generations of men, um, it's and I know like I some of you are saying, well, like, you know, we don't have to actually change it. We can just kind of skip over it. Sure, we can. But you know what? This is what hurts people's heads about the Silmarillion in the first place. Why should we go out of our way to keep that? You know, like, let's it's fine. It's like we it's it's fine. It's fine. Um, I, but we'll. Um, I, we'll see. We'll see. Let's just hang on to that. I just want to throw out the idea, mention that just to warn you that I'm going to be thinking about that uh, ways in which we can focus on the stories and probably condense uh, and uh, focus on that a little bit. Okay. All right. Elf stories. Uh, Figolfin's life work of the siege, an unsuccessful attempt to rally the Noldor for an offensive action culminating in despair. So Figolfin's um, uh, story arc really needs to be one of the dominant elf story arcs of the entire season, right? If there's going to be a single elf whose character and story carries the elf side of this story, it's got to be Fingolfin, right? Uh, in order to give us maximum payoff with his duel and death at the end of the season, um, we definitely need to spotlight that. And he is, the siege is his baby, right? You know, we are going to protect Middle-earth by setting Morgoth in Leaguer, and we can do this, right? We can protect everybody. We can hold him in, um, even if we can't defeat him. His desire and attempt uh, to um, his his desire and attempt to, to do an offensive, like his his perception that we probably shouldn't just wait for Morgoth to finish making whatever plans he's making. We should maybe strike while we're strong, and perhaps he's weaker. Um, I. Yes, and then, of course, how he's going to be convinced not to do that, and then how that's going to be disaster. Uh, the overall arc of Fingolfin is going to be tragic over the course of this year, and we need to be tending to that uh, and setting that up. Um, so clearly, that's a really, really big thing. 
we have tragic romance number one, Aravel leaving Gondolin, meeting Aeol, uh, and uh, giving birth to Maeglin. Um, now, we... This is the one element where we... When I was saying before that there's not much among the elf storylines that really necessitates having a long, you know, having a full like 146 years or whatever uh, for this season, the Maglin storyline is the only possible exception to that because he's got to be old enough. Um, I think that we can... Um, uh, I think we can be okay there. Um, even if we do shorten the time frame, I think we can be okay. Um, but it, that, that's for, in, in my mind, the time frame of that is going to be the biggest concern um, because we're, we're going to have to have first the story of Aravel leaving Gondolin and why she wants to leave. And we've already been talking about that and setting that up quite a bit in the second half of season four with her farewell tour that she does, that we gave her and her um, uh, basically her rationale, her, her uncertainty about whether or not the Gondolin plan was a good plan and her rationale for going along with it and supporting it and uh, accompanying Turgon to Gondolin in the first, in, in, in the first place, in the last place there uh, at the end of season four. Um, so yeah, um, we need to get her to the point of leaving and we'd art the primary thing we'd already talked about there and what we were trying to set up so carefully last season was we do not want Arvel merely to sound like a bored debutante in Gondolin, right? Um, like she's just a socialite who is suffering from ennui and wants to leave uh, and can't handle it. So um, that's what we've been setting up, and I think that's um, I think that's that's fine. Um, Marie, that seems to me very sensible. Marie says she thinks we probably have about 50 years of flex room if we wanted to condense. I agree. I do think the whole Aravel plot from Aravel has some time to start becoming discontented with how things are going in Gondolin and then leaves and finds Aeol, conceives and bears Maeglin and then Maeglin grows up to the point where he wants to come back. Part of the work there can be done by having Maeglin still be quite young. I mean, I'm not saying look like a six-year-old, but he can look like a 16-year-old. I know he won't actually be 16 years of the sun old because elves age differently than humans, but I'm saying he can be at about that stage, I think. Um, we can have Maeglin the moody teenager at the end. I do not think Maeglin has to be full... Uh, sort of full grown at that point. Um, so I think that we can, but we, 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 we can't shorten it um, too much or else we're going to either hasten her um, discontent uncomfortably, or we're going to um, make Maeglin uncomfortably young. Um, right. Exactly. Marie, I was thinking that too. Marie is estimating that getting, uh, getting Maeglin to, um, to like the moody, pimply, discontented stage uh, would probably not take more than 30 years of his life. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Chris, that to me is sort of the horrifying idea of elvish lifespans, that they have extended adolescences. I mean, I cannot imagine an adolescence that lasts decades. I mean, that seems to me like 
why would you need purification in the halls of Mandos if you've had to endure three decades of adolescence already, right? Uh, and for everyone else around you, to be perfectly honest. So, um, but yes, yes, uh, that 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 would be extended. Um, and um, so anyhow, um, but but yeah, so so that whole story. Now I see that uh, uh, Stephen was wanting me to put quotation marks around romance uh, for Aeol and Arathel. Yes, and I know <laughs> Nick was already expressing his discomfort with the Aeol and Arathel story, and it is going to be uncomfortable. Um, I have thoughts, but we'll get to those later on. Um, Finrod, of course, we are going to need Finrod to, de- to befriend the House of Beor. This is going to begin with Finrod and Beor meeting in episode one, right? Um, so we're going to have Finrod and Beor meeting at the beginning of episode one, and we're going to, well, honestly, at the end of last season, and then we're going to have uh, uh, Bar here rescuing Finrod on the battlefield near the end, right, uh, of the season. So one thread that's going to be going through is Finrod, not only as particularly friends of the House of Beor, but Finrod as friends of humanity, one of the, the one of the chief friends and advocates of the humans in Beleriand in general. Um, this is going to be one of the things that um, really sets Finrod apart from a lot of the other uh, elves. So, um, anyway, that's um, uh, definitely something we're going to have to be looking at. Um, and and then, yes, establishing also the connections, like the, the House of Hador and their moving in uh, to uh, Hithlum, right, uh, and and going to serve Fingon and Fingolfin up there in the northwest. Um, of course, we're going to have the story of um, um, uh, Amlach, as we said, the guy who uh, has his doppelganger speak at the uh, speak at the council, um, and of course Andreth, uh, who will be over there too, and Haleth, obviously, um, who's um, going to be doing her own thing. Um, uh, Haleth uh, is... Uh, I have to say, if there's one single character I am most interested in in Season 5, it is Haleth, actually. I think she is going to be really, really fun. And one of the things that I am really looking forward to is figuring out what stories we can give her. I say that because Haleth is she is given a prominent role in like the history, right? As a leader. Um, But she's not given many stories. If you see the difference, right? Like what we're told about her in the Silmarillion is like how she, how her people loved her and served her until the end of her life and like would follow her anywhere, even though some of them were like, dude, this is too much for us. But many of them stuck with it and followed her and like through her own force of will brought her people to find and how cheeky she is to elf lords all over the place. Right. Halith is somebody who doesn't take any guff off of any elf king. Right. No matter what. Um, 
but yeah, Nick, we, we get almost no detail, right? We get detail about the very first thing, about the death of her father and brother, and then when she, uh, you know, and, and, and her own survival in that first battle. But apart from that, we're just told, like, geopolitical stuff about Haleth, right? And then she led her people over to this other area. And then after being there for a while, she then led her people over again to another place uh, through many hardships. That's the kind of thing that we're getting. Those aren't stories, right? That's That's mentions she's significant but uh and we get these tantalizing glimpses of an awesome character um but we don't really get we don't really get get much yeah nick nominates holith for the deep space nine style spin-off uh from the film film project and that seems to me entirely right uh that seems to me entirely right um so anyway i i i'm i'm really interested to see how can we do more with Haleth? What kind of stories can we involve her in? Um, and honestly, one of the other reasons why I am interested, one of the, just to, to, to kind of put my chips on the table at the beginning, one of the reasons in which I advocate condensing and eliminating some of the generations is to spread the wealth a little bit. Um, and to give some of those characters who are named and important, but who don't get to do very much, um, like Hador, Hador Goldman, what does he do? He goes to Fingen and like swears fealty and is called peer of elf lords, which is cool. Why is he called that? What did he do? And under what circumstances did he get a name that means uh, peer of elf lords? Right? We don't know. We're never told. Right? He's cool. He's a legendary figure, but we don't get any any stories, actual stories about Hador, right? So I would kind of like to take the stuff that men are involved in and kind of both develop, but also concentrate the coolness into some of these cool characters and give them a chance to really sort of blossom here. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, okay. Um, uh, yeah. Corey, yeah. I have a, I have a question yeah. on, the peop- on the men. Um, so I'm wondering, like, uh, how many episodes uh, can a, a, on a show like this, where we're focused on the elves and we're operating on an elf time scale, how many episodes can we can a can a human character last? Right. Well, I well, mean, it's going to depend on um, it's going to depend on what we do with the time scale, right? I mean, yeah. it, let's just take you know, Marie, just throwing out there the number that you said, 146 is the actual years. Uh, in the book here. Uh, and if we take Marie's suggestion and trim off maybe 50, right? So say we're doing the uh-huh. whole thing in 100 years. The whole season is 100 years from beginning to end. Um, obviously, we don't have to split up the time equally in every episode, of course. Like, thinking of the ways in which... So, I mean, okay. Here's my approximation. If we essentially have... It seems to me that... We have kind of two important, two really important groups of characters, right? We've got the first generation important people, Beor, Haleth, Hador, right? And we've got the second generation really important people, like Bari here, right? Um, uh, and um, I would lump Andreth into the second generation instead of the first. I'd put her in the second generation. She, it'd be fit her a little easier there. Um if we so if we think about 
the older and the younger generation, that would fit with, of course, one of the shapes that our seasons have often had on film film have been sort of split into two halves with a pivot in the middle, right? Um, mm-hmm. Think of particularly the most dramatic version of that that we had was season two, right? Where the first half of season two was fo- was from Quivienne to the arrival in, um, uh, in Valinor. So we had elves and the progress across... Middle Earth as they were setting sail for Valinor. Um, and then we had a bunch of time passes and we had the second half of the season from the from the, the release of Melkor and the unrest of the Noldor in the second half of the season. Um, and of course, Dave, we even introduced a new generation of characters there, right? The younger generation of elves um, came about, you know, were there as characters in the second half of the season, but they weren't in the first half. So we've even done something kind of like that um, with our elf characters in the um, uh, in the in the previous years and that's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm thinking uh, that we could do something like that focus something like the first half of the season on the older generation those the first wave of men and es- the, the establishment of of men there in Middle Earth and their relationship with the elves and their different storylines and their different kindreds. And then we could skip a little bit of time and come back to, you know, Barahir and Andreth, uh, and, uh, and, and others, you know, that we would need. I mean, I'm saying those two, we might want to keep touching base with the people of Haleth there as well. People of Haleth kind of fall off the map. That's another problem. Well, not problem. I don't mean, I'm not saying it's, wrong in the Silmarillion or bad in the Silmarillion. I'm just saying we don't like is there any are there any named characters from the House of Haleth until we get to uh you know Hurin and Huor? You know, I mean it's I don't think so. Like it's um we skip a lot, right? Yeah, I know there's family tree, but that's that's it. Apart from the family tree, that's all we get. Um so anyway uh, we could. Uh, I'm also wondering. Yeah, so go ahead. Uh, I'm wondering. I wonder if there's an opportunity to to do like a like a like a slightly different kind of storytelling with the human characters, where like basically they just get one really strong episode. Sort of like basically, I guess. I guess the the parlance would be a bottle episode. Right. Right. You know, like they just get one really strong up ep- one episode where it's like we just like we just focus on this character and we tell mm-hmm. their story end to end in a single episode. We could definitely I could see Holleth's story being like that. It's not like she'd only be in one episode. Um, right. But she seems a strong candidate for that kind of treatment to have this, you know, one episode, which is like the Holleth is awesome episode. And yeah. and then and then she had some cameos. Right. Yeah, and she can be involved in sort of the general story in other places, but um, mm-hmm. but we have one 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 episode which is totally like from you know focused on her from beginning to end. Um, we could definitely do that. I'm not saying we need do that, but we could uh, we could we could definitely do that. We'll see. Nick, I agree. We are going to have lots of other storylines going, so um, we'd have to be a little selective with that. I think that we could afford to do that maybe once or twice. Um, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Uh, then we've got Endreth. 
Back to elf plot lines. Uh, so Andreth is here, of course, because we have our second tragic romance of season five, Ignor and Andreth, our first ever elf-human love affair, which ends tragically because it is uh, tragic, of course, because if you don't know the story, and again, no reason why you would, even if you've just read The Silmarillion, um, because it's only just sort of told in the notes around the end of the, the Athrobeth, that Andreth and Ignor are in love mutually. This is a requited love on both sides, but Ignor can't slash won't marry her because it's a time of war. Um, uh, and just like, so for various reasons, like he feels that it is not right for them to be together. And so their love is requited, but unconsummated. And, um, uh, and they are forlorn and desolate. And then he dies in the Dagor Bragalak. So, uh, and so, so one of the ironies, which I think we absolutely have to play on, right? I mean, one of the issues being the first time we are ever going to raise the question of an elf-human love relationship, the question has got to be like, oh, how is that going to work with an immortal, you know, guy and his uh, and his mortal lover? She's going to grow old and die and he's going to outlive her. And of course, the irony, she's going to outlive him by decades. Um, so there's a horrible, painful irony to the end of their story uh, there at the end. Um, but um, I don't know. I, I kind of, yeah, sorry, tipped my hand there. Um, I know she dies uh, there then as well. I, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, 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 I am sort of suggesting that we consider shifting the chronology there and having her outlive, uh, live, survive the Dagor Bragalak. But um, we don't have to. We, I'm not wedded to that. I'm not wedded to that. I'm just saying, I think it's, I think it would be, especially if we kind of think about the human stories in the way that I was like the first wave and the second wave, right? And if Andreth is in the second wave, um, she'd have to die relatively young. I mean, we'd have to, we'd have to let her be relatively young or, or again, be messing around a bunch with time. Um, and uh, I, I, um, kind of like the yeah I, I do like leaning into that irony there Marie um, and having her be the bereaved semi non-widow right uh, functional widow of Ignor um, and um, anyway yeah there's I, I think there's a lot of potential there so we'll see I, I again not uh, not insisting not decreeing just 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 spitballing ideas for that storyline um but, um, yeah, Rihanna and I agree. We do not need to show the death of, of, uh, of Andreth in age. Um, simply showing, I mean, a, an aging, grieving Andreth could simply be part of our montage of mourning right at the end. Um, but, um, anyway, we'll see, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll get to details of that later on. But this is a major, is a major thing. And so, by the way, Notice that this also enables for a, a, a balanced shape, right? If the we get Aeol and Aravel and the uncomfortable and tragic and ugly in various ways uh, romance of the first half of the season, and then the beautiful but tragic romance of 
uh, Ignor and Andreth in the second half of the season, um, you know, those two can then also be kind of playing off each other in some sorts of interesting ways, I think, too, with the parallel structure that we're establishing there. So again, several things are kind of inclining me towards, you know, that, that sort of, you know, diptych structure of this season that we've done before um, and which I think could, could work pretty well. We have, of course, the plotline of the Green Elves' unfriendship with the men when they cross over. So we're going to have to do some work here. This, by the way, seems to be, uh, and connecting this to the next question, the question of Galadriel and Celeborn's honeymoon. Um, Are they still out and about? Where do we meet with them? And how often? I was going to suggest the Green Elves as a place there because, of course, we have um, uh, Celeborn's sister as one of the uh, unofficial leaders of uh, the uh, uh, anarcho-syndicalist commune that is the Green Elves. Um, and so the issue of their unfriendship to the Elves is a thing that Goadriel and Celeborn can be kind of at least observers of or even in some ways caught in the middle of, uh, and that would be interesting. Um, Brian, you know, I'm, Brian says it might be fun to have Andreth still a, still around and playing some minor role, even in the Baron and Luthien season, have her survive, uh, and have there be some way in which she's still involved in the story in the story in some in some way, uh, in uh, in season six. I agree. I, I, I I'm definitely game uh, for that kind of thing. Um, also, I don't know if we've if we've decided what it's going to be yet, but. The Halas story and or the Andra story could also be part of the um, frame narrative. Yeah. Well, hmm. it would be a storytelling thing. In other words, it would be a looking back right. history lesson kind of thing. So it, it could actually span the two. It could span the story right. and then some PS postscripts or something. I don't know. Anyway. It would be interesting to kind of play around with the relationship with the, with the frame and see how we could kind of work that. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Ooh, Marie is thinking about seeing Andreth as the one who passes on Narsil, because remember, Narsil is Ignor's sword. Um, so, and it's got to, you know, he's going to die, but it needs to survive, obviously. So, uh, if she is the transmitter and the one who hands on, uh, Narsil, that would be, uh, if she is the way that Narsil gets into the hands of men. And so it will eventually be passed down. Kind of, kind of cool. Kind of cool. Um, okay. Um, yeah, Chris, that would be interesting to think about. Chris Graham is uh, thinking about um, the, the. There's an opportunity with the men in Osirian and the relationship with the Green Elves for us to play with the kind of uh, sort of fairy um, framework, uh, which is so common. Of course, in Tolkien stories, the you know that that you know so having this sense of entering fairy and how you know in more than one sense perhaps Osirian seems like a, a perilous realm when they enter into it. It's not only because they might catch an arrow in the face uh, when they you know go about their business hunting and uh, hunting beasts and hewing trees. Um, yeah. Anyway, so. <clears throat> Yeah, and Marie, I agree. We'll have a whole session in which we talk about the frame, so I'm not going to worry about that too much right now. But yeah, we we can definitely think about that sort of thing, uh, Trish. Um, Okay. Uh, 
Right, okay, so that's it for elf plots. Dwarves. We had said last season that we did not want to leave the dwarves entirely behind. We would like to continue building um, some of the dwarf storylines. The chief dwarf storylines of season four were focused on forging stuff, especially Narsil and the Dragon Helm, and on Nargothrond, of course, and the eviction of the petty dwarves and the... um, uh, the gift of Nargothrond to Finrod and the careful management of that situation. Um, those were our dwarf storylines in season four. Um, and to be honest, there are very few necessary dwarf storylines between then and now. The dwarves still need to be involved with Aeol and Maeglin, right? Maeglin is going to learn from the uh, from the dwarves, so we get at least some cameo dwarf appearances there, or, you know, dwarven realms appearances um, um, in the first half of the season. But there are very few moments uh, when the dwarves are really kind of front and center within the Silmarillion text uh, stories here. Uh, and Marie, I agree. We've had two primary dwarf characters that we've been very interested in in our storylines in season three and four. Uh, Norn, the dwarf ambassador to the Sindar, and Telkar, the smith, of course, uh, whom we decided should be female, uh, and of course the one who forges Narsil, uh, named in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and yeah, they're both dead. Now, they, we had both of them dying of old age in season four. Um, so, uh, anyway, I... Uh, yeah, I know Nick was uh, has been a particular advocate of getting more um, dwarvish stuff happening. So suggestions for dwarvish storylines. Nagrod forms an, an alliance with Nargothrond, and Zirak makes the Nauglamir. So the Nauglamir is is one other brief dwarven touch, right, on uh, this time period, when Finrod sends off a bunch of his jewels to be made into the Nauglamir. Obviously, from a dwarf standpoint, the Nauglamir is not a minor storyline. The Nauglamir is a very big deal to the dwarves. And in my mind, Nick, that's the biggest thing to focus on, right? My, um, uh, my biggest thought there is that if we could emphasize in Season 5, if we could find some ways to emphasize that, like, although the absolute value of these things is not as high. The parallel still kind of works. Something like Silmarils are to the elves as the Nauglamir is to the dwarves, essentially. I mean, to, to emphasize, this is not just, you know, a some fancy piece of bling that the dwarves really like when they try to, you know, haggle with Thingol over that later on, right? Um... It is a huge, big deal to the dwarves. Um, the Nauglamir would be something. This is this is meant to be one of the like the greatest work of dwarven craftsmanship ever. Like the Silmarils again. Not that the Nauglamir is on exactly the same plane as the Silmarils, um, but it's a very, very big deal. Um, uh, and so there are, I can imagine, storylines that we could develop um, involving Finrod, involving the dwarves, even the dwarves among themselves. Um, Nick, I think it would be pretty funny. Um, 
it would be it would be almost Easter egg like, right? If uh, if we have a bunch of storylines, but they just don't involve elves, right? So the elves never learn about it, so it never makes it into the published Silmarillion, right? But like, what the Silmarillion says really simply, right? That the you know Finrod, Finrod had these gems crafted, and and they gave him the Nauglamir, right? We get like in one paragraph, in like a couple sentences, we get the story of the Nauglamir in the published Silmarillion. What if? Um, like behind and beneath that like one sentence reference is like this whole story of like civil war and like treachery and uh, you know that I mean because wouldn't they like they would make it and they'd want to keep it and there'd be debates about like could, are they going to cause war with the elves if they don't give it back to Finrod and and some dwarves wanting it and others not and so I mean there'd be a lot going on there potentially right even again even action scenes and uh, and fights or even uh, even a, a minor war uh, between Nagrod and Belagost perhaps it's the kind of thing we know happens between dwarvish uh, you know dwarven houses um, what if something like that was going on uh, you know, behind the scenes or under the mountains, and the elves just, they, they don't even ever know about it. And so, again, that's why it doesn't make it in the published Silmarillion. Um, exactly, Mike. Think of the opportunities we have for a parallel to the kinslaying, right? Um, uh, pursuing that parallel a little bit, not just make, not, not just trying to elaborate a parallel for the sake of the parallel, but raising the issue again in some new and fresh ways, right? The question of, the love of the work of one's hands and the desire for, uh, for beautiful things and the, uh, you know, the willingness to slay one's kin and all of these other things. So, you know, that's, I'm just saying there's some material there, I think. Um, uh, yeah, let's see. And, uh, and of course we've got Belagos seen from the point of view of Aeol and Maeglin. Now, Marie points out that we've not we've mentioned Nagrod, but we've not really been involved with Nagrod. Most we've been very Belagost centric because that's where Telkar was, and that's where Norn came from. So our two primary dwarf characters were both Belagostian. Um, uh, so we we this gives us an opportunity to introduce a whole new set of dwarves, and then maybe introduce some conflict. Um, so. Just saying, that could be interesting to kind of uh, work some of that stuff. Would be interesting to see if any uh, folks either on our discussion boards or among our uh, our uh, plot team um, are interested in kind of running with uh, a dwarf subplot. We'd have to be careful because it can't take over, right? I mean, we can't have it uh, um, coming to dominate the entire season. But, you know, there's definitely some stuff there now. Uh, Rhiannon and Tony are both asking if we should involve Khazad Doom. Um, part of me says, hey, why not? Part of me says, maybe we don't want to um, burn through all of our assets in one spot, <laughs> right? There's going to be a bunch of seasons yeah, in which we don't have a lot of It's early days yet. Besides, I think, I think we'll probably... I don't know if we will or not. I mean, one thing to consider, you know, like this season is last season was elf season. This season's man season. We, we should probably have a season that's dwarf season. Well, we'll certainly get there though. It's hard to see. Well, okay. Um, the ruin of Doriath is when we're going to get there. I mean, that's our, that's the next oh, right, huge okay. dwarf moment, yeah, right? Is the ruin true. of Doriath. 
Um, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Tony and Rihanna, and I think have both suggested we could bring uh, Mithril into the oh, that's uh, good. Glamir question, um, which would involve Khazad Doom, not directly, right? Like not going to Khazad Doom, but um, but exactly, Rihanna, a sort of uh, visiting. Uh, long beardian scholar who uh, uh, you know and Smith who can help them with mithril um, or even merchant honestly um, but anyway yeah no we could think about that again my thought is yes Marie I'd rather name drop it in this season and work with it later on because as I say we've got a lot of ground to we got a lot of seasons in which there's I mean what are we going to do with the dwarves next season in the Baron and Luthien season right I mean come on there's nothing happened with dwarves in that season so um so there's going to be a lot of times when we're 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 we're, we're going to have plenty of space to fill if we don't want to lose sight of dwarves and um so Nagrod is the um uh you know, our first big opportunity here. I mean, that's like our new frontier. We do have a big new dwarf frontier and kind of set of plot threads with some new Nagrodian dwarves. So, um, uh, that seems to me enough new dwarf business without getting into Moria also in this season. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I was remembering the death of Az- the heroic death of Azahal in uh, uh, in the near ninth. Of course, that's going to be another moment that we can play up in some good ways. But again, that's ways down the road. Um, but um, okay, and yeah, what should the interactions with men be? Does the published Silmarillion tell us? the first thing does it dedicate even a single syllable to telling us anything about relations between men and dwarves nope i can't think of one a syllable that is uh that suggests that um i think it depends on where we go with the dwarf plot if our dwarf plot is going to be more kind of balerian focused um uh, if we're going to be focused more on like trading traveling and ambassador dwarves um, then I think we're definitely going to want to do that if we're focused on mostly internal dwarf politics uh, and drama then I would say probably not we don't need to really go there necessarily um, yeah yeah um, yeah we'll see we'll see um it's, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to put up a firewall between men and dwarves, but I don't see any storyline that screams out for it. But we'll see what we get to there. And finally, we have the villains. Mind, we're just st- st- I'm just still here enumerating storylines, right? That's all that's happening here so far. Um, the catch and release program among the villains. We've got the villain storylines. The catch and release program. Um, we need uh, uh, Rogren was just captured uh, at the end of season four. So we need Rogren's escape and we need Anil's escape. Uh, and of course we wanted to have Anil used as a sleeper agent and eventually be discovered and become a hermit. Um, so those, those storylines definitely we need. What, what is, um, 
What is the new plan from Sauron now that he's already tried it once and with some success, right? And, uh, and of course, especially now that the boss is back, right? Um, as uh, Morgoth is back in, in town. And fake Amlock, yes, fake Amlock story is definitely one that has to end the whole doppelganger imposter thing going on. Uh, sure, sure. Um, uh, and of course, we've got the build up for the Dagor Bragalach. Um, uh, yep, yep. Um, yeah, Nick is thinking we might want it'd be nice to go back and give Glaurung a bit of explanation so that he's not just the monster of the week at the end of. Uh, uh, yeah, we, we, we don't want Glaurung and his appearance in the previous um, episode, I mean, like the last episode of, of, of season four to to look like you know like the the watcher in the water or something right a uh, a cool scary monster who's never heard from again in the storyline um uh so yeah getting a little bit more depth into who glaurung is and what he's all about um so yes a, a little backstory there i definitely think that glaurung now that he's not, now that he's through his awkward adolescent period, right? Everybody's got an awkward adolescent period, and Glaurung had it, and you know he's 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 done now. Um, now that Glaurung is older, wiser, and more evil, um, we can ha- sort of have him inserting himself into Angband politics. In, in particular, um, I think that we can explore at least a little bit where does Glaurung lie in the whole. Um, you know, Sauron Gothmog axis that we've been looking at throughout the, uh, the show so far. Um, personally, if I had to, uh, suggest something there, I would suggest that he, he's basically a third player in that, that he sees both of them as his rivals. Um, and he wants to now establish a plan to make himself, um, the dominant force, which he is going to pretty much achieve, right? I mean, the day that Glaurung sacks Nargothrond, he's the top of the heap, right? Not only the top of the heap of Finrod's treasure, but he's the top of the heap in Ang. I mean, he is the Dragon King of Beleriand, almost, at that point, at least most of Beleriand at that point. Um, and, um, uh, and of course, Sauron is, Sauron is already... Post Luthien at that point, um, so anyway, yeah, there's there's uh, stuff with Glaurung, definitely both backstory, perhaps uh, Nick, but also you know can, showing his future stuff, um, which um, um, uh, which definitely we can we can we we can work on. <laughs> yeah, Stephen covers suggesting we bring him in like the under construction Death Star in Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> so that's, that's that's almost what we did do with him uh, in season four, but um, uh, we'll see. Um, uh, Rihanna and I like the idea about him possibly helping to hypnotize Anile, helping to establish the force of Glaurung's own will and sort of psychic power is something that would be kind of nice to establish, I think. I don't know that we want to necessarily put Anil entirely into his uh, into his zone, as it were, but um, 
but it's something that we could certainly consider. As I say, setting him up for um, the actions he's going to be taking, right? So that we're ready. Um, when, when, um, what's her name? Neonor, like, comes up to the top of the hill, comes around the corner, and there's Glaurung's face just staring right into hers, right? We should know what that means, right? This should uh, fill us with a horrible dread even before we see what he does. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. Ooh, nice. Maria's pointing out how Sauron's relationship with Glaurung could also give sort of... Uh, be an interesting lay some interesting groundwork uh, for Gandalf's fears about Sauron's relationship with Smaug, right? Um, We could have him be an ally of Sauron's and so, and therefore show uh, sort of in anticipation, so that again, when when Smaug comes down and sacks Erebor and Sauron's plans for um, setting himself up in, in Mordor again are almost complete, uh, you know, experienced film film viewers will be full of rightful trepidation uh, knowing what could happen there. I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> You're right, Nick. Uh, Stephen, Nick points out that except in our version, there was a scene where the Death Star shows up out of context to blow up a town. <laughs> it's true. We had the, we had the, uh, the, 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 Death Star still covered in scaffolding, uh, uh, running amok there for a little bit at the end of the season. But uh, hey, it's in the text. Um, uh, sorry, no, it's the other Stephen. Stephen Cover. I apologize. There are two of you here. Um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, good. Yep. So plenty of uh, plenty of stuff there. One again. One of the things I am going to be interested in is uh, to see. Sauron and Morgoth's relationship developing over the course of the season. Because here's 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 my thought there. We've been focusing on Gothmog versus Sauron. Now I'm thinking that Gothmog, it's not like he's out of the picture, but I think that Gothmog is by this point now definitively losing the political fight with Sauron. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Sauron is the one with good plans, and uh, especially the way that we set up the Dagor Aglareb to be a black eye for, for Gothmog, right? That, you know, that was his kind of uh, uh, kind of disaster. Um, and Sauron's plans about, you know, the catch and release program are bearing fruit, and Morgoth clearly approves in the way that he comes in and is involved uh, with the spell of Bottomless Dread at the end of the Edelos story that we were establishing. Um, so Sauron taking his place as more clearly and firmly the chief lieutenant of Morgoth. Um, again, if, if we show him now clearly in supremacy over Gothmog and Gothmog sort of fading into the background as more just, he's, he's just thug and the captain of the Balrogs and the one who leads them in battle. But He's no longer really uh, of much account when it comes to, to plan, planning and counsel and leadership now, um, though he still is going to be very resentful, of course, of Sauron. Um, but um, but 
And now he's now he's falling even further in favor because now there's Glaurung. There's Glaurung, right? He's gonna be he's gonna be third fiddle instead of second fiddle now. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I don't think that losing the active conflict between Sauron and Gothmog diminishes the drama of the bad guys, both because you know, Dave, as you say, we've got the interjection of Glaurung into the equation. But at the same time, also, we can focus instead on the dynamics between Sauron and Morgoth. With Morgoth gone last season, it was all about who's in charge and who's really driving this in in Morgoth's absence and whose plans are better, right? And we kind of answered that question over the course of the season. So now the question is, well, the boss is back and I'm not in charge anymore. How do I handle that, right? Where are places that Morgoth and Sauron come into conflict, or where is there envy or rivalry between them? Um, that could be something that uh, I think would be sort of... We've already set that up. We prepared for that, right, with the orc um, issue that happened at the end of Season 2 and uh, that kind of thing, that we've already sort of set the stage for that a bit. Um, but... Um, yeah, that's interesting, Marie, thinking about Sauron and Gothmog kind of vying for Glaurung's loyalty, right, to have him throw in on their side, uh, which also, of course, enables Glaurung to potentially manipulate both of them and try to uh, get his own place. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, we are going to have Tony, as you say. Um, no, wait. Uh Wait, who is that? Nick. Nick was saying, um, Sauron is, of course, going to be given command of the forward ops base, right? Uh, at uh, Minas Tirith, uh, which becomes uh, 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 Towering Gorholth. Uh, and, um, and of course, yeah, that's not, that's not going to end well, right? Sauron's role there. But um, um, that I would say as sort of a parallel to the Glaurung and Nargothrond moment that I was mentioning earlier, really the, 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 the acme of Sauron's own political power in Beleriand is that moment, right? When he establishes himself at ruling in what was Minas Tirith, um, in Finrod's tower and, uh, and he, uh, establishes his base and he's basically ruling most of Beleriand, Right. Um, that I think is, um, uh, yeah, definitely sort of his high watermark before Luthien takes him down. Um, yeah, good. Rhiannon points out that, of course, we don't want to tease the Dagor Bragalak too much. We want it to be a surprise. Um, that is the full extent of it and the nature of how it's planned. So by focusing on political tensions in the villain storylines, um, we are kind of distracting away from the building up of military strength and what Morgoth's final plans are uh, for the Dagor Bragalak. He might himself be kind of playing those close to the vest a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Stephen, uh, uh, Stephen has a great question about how much more powerful is Sauron than Gothmog. Um, right now, Sauron's record in one-on-one -on -one fights is pretty poor and will be. I mean... Give me a scene when Sauron kicks butt on the battlefield in the whole history yeah, of Arda, he, uh, Right? I mean, he's got a bad track record, doesn't he? Yeah, not, not so good. 
right? He does a fair bit of surrendering, getting overthrown, getting cast down and looted. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying he's a complete wimp, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm just saying that we... Um, not much, right? Um, we did give him a pretty good moment in the capture of Mithros there, Nick, but even there, he's not exactly playing fair. Um, yeah, 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 Marie was recalling that, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, no, I agree. I mean, it's now, Tony points out that, to be fair, Morgoth himself doesn't have the greatest possible track record, either. <laughs> Admittedly. In fact, Tony, I mean... One could easily argue that at the end of the day, you know, when all of the counters are in, uh, Gothmog is probably going to have the best military record of any of the bad guys. He, he will have won several battles, actually. Um, uh, but but yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I don't I don't really think that um, I, I don't really think that uh, Sauron necessarily need be um, a major uh, um, a major military figure. I don't think it needs to be something that he specializes in. I think we've done a really good job of positioning him so that we show he's not just a bad commander or a weak fighter. It's just, it's not what he does, right? I mean, it's not, he's scarier because he gets you in other ways, right? He's able to manipulate you and corrupt you. Uh, uh, you know, he doesn't need to beat you up. Um, so... I'm totally fine with that. Um, okay. All right. I have an idea. Next slide. Woohoo. Okay, so let's get to the men because there are all kinds of men all over the place here. Um, yeah. So... Let's talk a little bit about these stories. We talked about these some, but uh, have I given you enough time to get used to the idea of compressing the timeline? Um, here are the storylines enumerated. Bayor meets Finrod and agrees to go to Nargothrond. The encampment at Estolad, that is when the main bulk of the men cross the mountains and set up their encampment at the place which they cunningly name Encampment. Um... Then we've got the fighting at Maglor's Gap, the death of Beor, of old age, right, which is a big deal because it's the first time that elves are introduced to mortality. Uh, Boromir leaves. Uh, there's clearly got to be like uh, tourism, you know, like elvish tourism, like come see the corpse of Beor. Um, uh, but anyway, Boromir le moves to Ladros in Dorthonian. Andreth meets Ignor. Andreth middle aged. Uh, Andreth has a young woman meets Ignor. Andreth has a middle aged woman. Uh, uh, has her discussion with Finrod. Um, the death of Andreth. Andreth has an elderly woman, which maybe we save till season six, or maybe we don't. Uh, the death of Bregalas in the Dagor Bragalach and Barahir saving Finrod in the Dagor Bragalach. Okay. Um, of these storylines. Um, what, um, what, oh, so Tony is asking, would the elves have not dealt with mortal death with the dwarves? No. In fact, remember, we were, uh, we were talking about that. We, we, we cause Norn is old, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, he, so we had him retiring and like, 
wanting to conceal the mortality of the dwarves from the elves. So like the, the elves have never seen the dwarves die of old age. Um, uh, Norn went back, you know, to spend more time with his grandkids and stuff. Right. Uh, and they just never saw him again. So he just went into retirement, uh, had some other things that he wanted to do. Um, that, that discussion, I definitely remember that, that we specifically said that would be one of the things that we feel pretty strongly that dwarves would not be sharing with outsiders. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it enables us to have it be a fresh surprise to the elves with the men and so right. be a much more human oriented mortality, be a human oriented issue here. Right. Um, but also it, it, it also gives us it gives us the opportunity to present uh, yet another point of view on yeah. mortality um, where, you know, so we have, we, we have one race that's not mortal and then we have two, two that are one that is, and one that's kind of sort of is. And, and in the case of the kind of sort of is one, the dwarves, we have this kind of like secretive, like, I, I don't recall exactly. I don't remember if we thought it was something that was shameful or if it was just something that they were very private about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But with men, I think, men are going to wear it on their sleeves. Right. It's going to be something that they're going to like, want to be constantly like talking to their elf buddies about the elves are just going to be like, why do you keep bringing this up? And then they're like, yeah, but you know, cause it, cause it's always, cause I think one thing that we for sure see in the, in the Silmarillion is that it weighs on, it weighs on their minds. Right. 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 Even more so when they, when they meet the elves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. No, I agree. I think that that's a, it's a really good way to think about this. Okay, so thinking about these storylines, just these here in the House of Beor, what what is essential? So here's one of my things, and here's one of the other re- reasons. I didn't even mention all of my reasons for wanting to compress. Here's the other reason I would like to compress. A very large percentage of the stories of men pre-Dagor Bragalach go back to the text and look at what percentage of the prose just deals with men moving house. First they camped here. <laughs> then they moved over to there. Then after a while, they removed to this other place after which they came and started living over here with these other people. It's like 90% of the story of the, of the men. And that's not high drama folks in general. Right. And, in my mind, eminently compressible. Or to say it in another way, we can do more with the stories of these men than just show their migratory patterns, right? Um, I, 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 I think that that's exactly, Marie. The story is about whether or not the men are aligned with the elves and joining in the war against Morgoth. And so therefore, yeah, I, I think that we can cut out the middle stages in a lot of the kind of migrations, right? So Boromir, for instance, right? Like Boromir is the generation I was arguing that we cut out, though I want to keep his name uh, in, in uh, you know, as a minor character. I, again, I, I, I would rather have Boromir than Bregalos be the dude who dies in uh, the Dagor Bregalach, but whatever. Um, he's the generation I want to cut. Yeah, we need to get them to Dorthonian, but let's just have them move straight to Dorthonian, right? So Beor, Beor's thing, right? The story, like, what does Bayor mean? Pop quiz. Translate the name Bayor. It means? Like, what he's called, he calls himself Vassal. Like, he names himself, like, he takes 
this name because he is the faithful servant of the elves, right? So wow, we all whiffed. Everybody whiffed on that one. Yeah, that was that was uh, that was, uh, that was yeah. It's hard because it does sound like Bjorn, uh, which does mean bear. <laughs> so it doesn't mean bear, though it seems like it should. Um, it means vassal, right? Uh, now, notice it doesn't mean slave. It doesn't mean even servant, and it doesn't mean serf. It means vassal, right? He is still a lord who has sworn service, sworn fealty to a higher lord, right? So, okay. Um, Beor's story, therefore, so yes, like the big question in drama at the beginning with the men is going to be, what are they? So they arrive in Beleriand. What happens next, right? And what happens next has two sides to it, obviously, right? There's the question of the men. Hey, like, hey, human beings, you've arrived in Beleriand. Where are you going to go and what are you going to do next, right? Um, oh, hey, there's this big war on with the evil god of the north. You want part of that, right? You, you want in on that action um, or not, right? And we know that some of the men are going to choose not and they're going to leave again, Um so, okay, so that's, um, uh, that, that's the big question. That's the, the big sort of drama with the men. What do they do? Do they ally themselves with the elves or not? Do they fight alongside the elves or not? Do they just mind their own business? And, of course, if they mind their own business, do they stay and mind their own business in Beleriand or they, do they leave and mind their own business elsewhere, right? So that's the, the big question in the first generation of men, in the first half of the season. That's the big question. Um, from the elf point of view, of course, the big question is, whoa, who are these people and what do we do with them, right? Do we want anything to do with them? Are they useless or are they not useless, right? The Feanorians, a lot of the Feanorians are going to be like, I vote useless, right? Carinthir is going to vote useless at first. Um, and um, anyway, so uh, so we're going to, but of course, Finrod is going to be the, you know, so we're going to have different schools of thought here about how they, re- and then we're going to have uh, Thingol making his delightfully, uh, I, 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 you know, his uh, statements dripping with dramatic irony about how he will never allow a human to come uh, within his realm, obviously. Um, so anyway, so we're going to have, we're going to have different uh, reactions from the elves as well. So establishing what the men do to some extent, it seems to me, Remember when we were talking about this, the, the ELF um, capture and release program, and we were thinking about the different ways in which, like the different possible outcomes, and we decided we wanted to have like a character, like at least one character, who was sort of, the, whose story demonstrated each one of those, but so we could see the full scope of that particular story. I think we need to do a very similar thing here. Um, with um, the men and with the different houses, right? Let's not just have a bunch of names of houses that people have to memorize and then have them moving around all over the place. Let's instead focus on the the division of the groups of, of the different kindreds of the men defined by the different avenues that they take in response to these questions, right? So Haleth, um, as you say, Marie, is... Uh, Beor is defined by his allegiance to the elves from the beginning, right? He is all about serving the elves. Um, Haleth is all about independence, 
right? She's all, no, she's, no one is going to tell Haleth what to do, but she is going to do what she wants to do here in Beleriand and no one's going to stop her, right? Not even Thingol, whom she's going to face down. Um, and so you're telling me that nobody's going to put Haleth in the corner. Is no that what one, you're saying? No one's going to put Haleth in the corner. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly true. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Sorry, now you got an Eminem song in my head, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, and I'm trying not to quote it because that's almost always inappropriate. But uh, so, the, and then we have the the there's the middle ground, right? There's Beor, who's 100% pro-elf. There's uh, uh, Haleth, which is 100% independent. Then you've got the other kindred, which is, until Hador comes along, really ambivalent, right? So you've got this kind of, we're sort of supporting, but we're sort of not supporting. Some of us are going away and a lot of us are staying. Until Hador comes along, moves to Hithlum and everything's fine. I think that we can streamline that story. A good bit. Again, if Hador... I don't know. My first impulse, and I think I mentioned this at some point during Season 4, my first impulse was to say, what if it's Hador who is the leader of the Third House there? Haleth, Hador, and Beor are the big three um, in the first generation there. Um, But we don't have to do that. We can keep Hador as you know, the elder statesman at the beginning of the, you know, he's like the grandpa at the beginning of, of the, you know, of the next, you know, maybe not grandpa, but the, uh, you know, gray haired, but still hale and hearty, uh, warrior King at the beginning of the, of the second half of the season. Um, but, um, anyway, I, I maybe I'm Maybe we 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 choose Amlach as the major leader. He maybe he's the we kind of raise his uh, portfolio a little bit, um, and make the big three uh, into um, uh, Amlach, Haleth, and Beor in the first generation. Um, which, um, yeah, and and if we do, I would recommend just cutting Marak and Malach. Just just cut them. I mean, they're almost non-entities in the Silmarillion as is. We know nothing about them. We get no stories about them. I won't grieve for their loss because we don't know anything about them. Um, uh, so yeah, why not Amlach, right? If we're again, if we're going to make him, if we want to emphasize his storyline anyway, right? Anyway, so introducing a distinction between. Or really giving a definition, giving a purpose to that middle group, right? The the group, the big group that's kind of the squishy in the middle big group between Beor on the one end and uh, between the very decisive Beor and Haleth on either end, right, of the human spectrum. Um, but... Um, yeah, they do frighten the green elves, but again, they can do that under Amlock's leadership just as well as they can do it under anybody else's. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, yeah. 
No, Stephen, my original suggestion was not that we uh, that we make Hodor super old and, you know, dying, uh, you know, at the age of 120 or something in the in the Dagor Bragalak. My original suggestion was that if we just promoted Hodor to the head of the genealogy uh, and made him one of the first generations that we remove him uh, and replace him by somebody else in the later uh, half of the story. Like, for instance, Sir, other Sir not appearing in this film, his son Galdor, right, who gets almost nothing at all, right? You know, we got Hador, who's awesome, and Hurin, who's super awesome, and Galdor, who's the guy you always forget about in the genealogy. I don't know about any of you, but I know there was a long period of time. There's a a, a, a discreet period in my life when I had forgotten that Hurin was not the son of Hador, right? Because I always skipped Galdor. Uh, and then he says it, you know, he introduces himself as Hurin, son of Galdor, uh, to meme uh, at the end of his life. And I'm like, oh yeah, Galdor, he existed. Um, but again, like, who, who is he? What does he do? We get, we get, we get nothing, but whatever. It's fine. Let's keep, let's keep, um, uh, let's keep Hador for the second, or even again, sort of transition. Maybe we have, you know, juvenile Hador at the end of the first half, and he's, uh, you know, advanced middle-aged Hador, again, the sort of uh, grandfatherly, warrior grandfather at the, you know, in the second half, whatever. Um, but, um, but yeah, I just, I don't want to introduce characters. I would rather not even name characters unless they have a role to play in the narrative. We don't want to put people in our in the show in the position where people often feel put when they read the Silmarillion, which is, am I supposed to remember this? Is there going to be a quiz later, right? Um, do I have to remember the difference between Marach and Malach and which one was whom? And the answer is no, you don't. Um, maybe part of, I, I will confess, perhaps part of my desire to compress this is like after like a long career of like helping people recover from not being able to read the Silmarillion the first time. And uh, this is the problem that people always have. And I don't want to replicate that problem. Why should we? Um, if there's one thing in the Silmarillion I do not want to faithfully represent in our adaptation, it is that. It is the, is there going to be a quiz later genealog genealogical element of it? Um, it's something that fits with the kind of story that the Silmarillion is, the kind of narrative that the Silmarillion is. Um, uh, uh, is... Um, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, we're telling a different kind of narrative and I would rather not, I would rather not even talk about people that aren't important people that we're not even going to mention, um, unless there's a reason. So you got to, if you want to keep people, you've got to give me a reason. They have to have a, there has to be a job for them. There has to be a purpose for their existence, a purpose that cannot be easily filled by somebody else, right? So for instance, Boromir moving into Dorthonian does not make the cut. Yes, he does a thing, but it is a thing somebody else could do just as easily or actually better than he could, right? Let's just have, why not have Beor move to Dorthonian? I'd be fine with that, right? Beor could be sent to Dorthonian, 
easy. His first relationship is f- with Finrod. Of course it is, right? But Finrod, as we know, is closely related to the guys who are in Dorthonian, right? What if Finrod sends Beor to Dorthonian um, with his people, right, to help support Angrod and Agnor? No problem, right? Um, Stephen, Boromir being Andreth's father is not a reason not to cut him. She just needs a different dad, and there's plenty of guys with Y chromosomes who are perfectly capable of begetting daughters running around, right? That's not enough reason to introduce a new character. Like, the dude whose only importance is he happened to beget Andreth is not a good character, right? We need a story. Um, yeah, I, I, I would actually like to request of our listeners that we don't get the kind of resistance that we had last season to this stuff. <laughs> really. Because, I mean, it's going to be even more people this season. So maybe, it's like, maybe. I don't really want to spend our sessions hashing over why someone should stay in the story. Okay, I think, I think Corey, what reason, you said like, is good. If there's a good justification a story. or there's a pitch good storyline. Story yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Pitch Absolutely. a story. If you want to pitch a story, by all means. Um, but we can't cut him because he's mentioned in the text. Yes, we can. In fact, we should, unless there's a story. That's 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 the way this kind the this kind of translation from one form of narrative to another, which is inescapably what we're doing in adapting the Silmarillion in this model, requires that. Right. So again, pitch stories. If you, I'm I'm so ready to listen. Um, uh, and as you know, I am not unwilling to be convinced of things. And as you probably also know, I'm a big sucker for an awesome story. So come up with an awesome story and I'm all ears. Right. Um, uh, you know, there we uh, um, there now we, let's not get go. carried away here and say, don't take that to me. You're guaranteed to get your way if you come up with an awesome no, story. Exactly right. I still yes, might not like good. it. Or still, we but, still might yeah. not have room for it. But yeah, absolutely. And uh, 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 Stephen, who is there to comfort Andreth after Ignor breaks her heart? Finrod. Finrod is there. That's where we get the element of the Athrobeth in. I don't think we need to dramatize the Athrobeth, their whole theological discussion. Uh, but yes, Finrod, I insist absolutely insist on having Finrod comforting Andreth um, because the tenderness and sensitivity of Finrod towards Andreth in that conversation is to me one of the most important and deeply moving elements uh, of um, uh, of that of the, of the it's one of the reasons I love the Athrobeth so yeah no fin, Finrod no problem um, uh, okay um, let's see. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mike says cut for an elf means they don't exist. Cut for a man can mean they live an unremarkable life and die in the background. Agreed. I just don't want to mention them because it's just, I don't want to confuse people. I don't want to confuse. We can imagine any number of unnamed men having interesting lives and dying without being mentioned in the story. But in which case, I want to go a whole hog on the not mentioning. That's all. That's all. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, we will we will see. Okay, so uh, again, I think there. So Beor's story, the focus and thrust of the House of Beor. Um, their primary dominance, especially in the first half, 
But all the way through, they are the most staunch supporters. They are most intricately connected with men. Now, the relationship that Hador uh, and his sons are going to have with Fingon is going to be different. Um, different in quality, but not... Uh, but I, 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 they're going to be connected. Um, they're going to swear loyalty uh, to Fingon as well. Um, uh, with Hador especially... But anyway, um, let's, um, uh, yeah, let's now, and I agree, Mike, if we find that it creates too many times creating, we can insert a couple unnamed or barely named duds in order to enable a uh, uh, time to pass. That's totally fine. Yeah. Um, just as we conveyed the passage of time off the off stage time. Right with elves by having buildings constructed and cities rise in the meantime. Right, uh, so too it becomes easier to convey the passage of time in the era of men because we just have to have somebody show up as grandpa who used to be a kid, or again somebody like allude to you know their dad who has since died whom we never met. Right, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, graveyards exactly. Um, uh, we we have opportunities uh, there. Uh, great. Graveyards expanding over time. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, and it, it may well be when we hash out the details that we want to add uh, some extra chronological padding somewhere. And if so, we've got plenty of candidates for chronological padding. Um, but that is certainly chronological padding isn't plan A. Anyway, okay. Um, uh, Bayor and his loyalty, first half. Andreth and her wisdom and uh, leadership, honestly. Um, Andreth needs to be a big deal. I mean, uh, well, we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to discussing these in more detail when we're doing the episodes and stuff, but Andreth... I want Andreth to be something like the leader. I know that Barahir is going to be. Um, so, I want to, uh, I want to preserve something like the genealogy of Rian and Morwen. Um, but another reason that I would like to de-emphasize Bregalos is that I would like to more emphasize Andreth. Um, I don't want her just to be a woman who is wise. I want her to be a leader among the, in the House of Baor. Um, at the very least, somebody that people defer to. But I would not at all be opposed to having her be the leader. Um, and that leadership passes not from Bregalas to Barahir, but from Andreth to Barahir. I would kind of like that story. Um, again, I don't want to lose the genealogy of Rion and Morwen entirely, um, if we could figure out another way. But I, I would kind of like Andreth to be a big because you see here, here's 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 why. Andreth in this way is a really interesting parallel figure to Beor in the first half, right? Beor is all about the elves, right? He pledges, he loves the elves. He pledges himself to the elves. He joins himself to Finrod in his house, right? 
Then there's his granddaughter, whatever she is, right? Endreth, who also loves the elves and also wants to join herself to the House of Finrod in a different way, right? So we've got, on the one hand, in the first half of the season, Beor is the rock, right? I mean, this is like, oh, hey, the commingling of humans and elves is awesome. This is totally how it should be. And then we've got Andreth and Ignor at the end, and it should be like, mm, well, there are potential down. Maybe we should uh, establish some boundaries. <laughs> I mean, again, like you see the issue, right? I mean, I think that's a really interesting sort of parallel structure. So again, having Beor be the leader in the first half and Andreth in the second half is another thing that sort of structurally appeals to me as far as the narrative is concerned. Um but we will, um, we'll see. We'll see what we can do, and we'll see what we can do with the genealogy, uh, with a revised genealogy of the House of Beor and what it would look like. I'll be interested to hear suggestions about that. Um, uh, I don't object to having somebody important from the House of Beor die in the Dagor Bragalock, but again, there's plenty of people around and plenty of people dying in the Dagor Bragalock, so uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm not too worried about... Uh, a shortage of corpses at the end of at the end of the day. Um, okay. Um, House of Hador. All right. Um, the House of Haleth. <laughs> I want to come back to the House of Hador. <laughs> uh, House of Haleth. Um, because this one is sort of simpler. Like I said, just as Beor is um, the. Uh, we're all about the elves and, and we pledge our loyalty to the elves. Haleth is the we're staying free agents house. Um, we can emphasize the conflict with the green elves. We need to have their, I mean, we need to have the one story that Haleth, the one real story that Haleth gets, the death of Haldad and Haldar um, and Haleth's personal heroism and the heroism of her people the grudging respect of Karin theory, these are all things that need to happen. So positioning the um, the Haladin so that they are um, able to be attacked and have this stuff happened is important. Um, the passage through Nendungortheb is um, important, uh, clearly, and the settling in the forest of Brethel is important, if only because we get to see her being cheeky to Thingol. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, so all that, but, but again, I, I would love to do more with her here and I'm not sure what, and I'm not sure how, um, what kind of, again, real stories, what kind of real stories do we tell about Haleth, um, and her people? Um, I don't know, but again, I would certainly like the journey of the Haladin through, the, through Nandan Gortheb not to be just a geopolitics story, right? Not to be something that is summarized in a paragraph as it is in the Silmarillion. And again, that's the form of narrative that the Silmarillion is, is, is undertaking, but that's not our form of narrative. Um, Nandun, the passage of the Haladin through Nandun Gortheb needs to be like, you know, Helcaraxa light, you know, uh, but only slightly light. It's in a different proportion and the dangers are different. Um, but, it needs to be a similar kind of experience for the people who are in it. Um, but remember, it's also Thingol's bloody fault because he won't let them pass through Doriath, right? So um, the unfriendship 
of the green elves and then the unfriendship of the gray elves lead to the very great suffering of the of the Haladin. So their story is also one of triumph in adversity. Um, and adversity that is... So again, we've got these two different sides of the relationship between humans and elves, right? In the Haladin and uh, the, the House of Beor, right? Um, so we, we get to sort of fairly see both of them. We get, we get to see elves looking good and elves looking bad. And um, uh, anyway, so that I think is very interesting. Will we include the Druidine? I think we have to. The question is when and where. We had talked about a long time ago. Such a good question. It really I is. Think, I don't think. I don't think we want to do them right away. I think we want no. to save them. For the we, have time. we have what time. We have time. What if? Uh, what if? Um, what if they were involved in some kind of confrontation with Sauron? Yeah. Yeah, we could. Maybe there are people that Sauron can't influence. Or, or um, oh, I, I mean, I guess really. Really, what we want to do is plant the seed of their like clear enmity for orcs, right? Yes, yes, exactly. But what do we do? We want to do that this season? Seems like not, right? Yeah. Or yes. The other big opportunity. This is one opportunity when we're doing the Haladin is one big opportunity. But the other big opportunity, of course, will be in the sort of. Uh, the greater neighborhood of Turin Turambar, right? Um, oh, that's, yeah. And like Nargothrond and Glaurung, right? In that area, we, we will have an right. opportunity to, to bring stuff in there. Um, uh, yeah. Um, we do need to lay the seeds for that somewhere, Mike. I, I do agree with that. Um, Here, okay, here's the tricky thing. We had talked about... We talked about this. When did we talk about this? Beginning of season four, maybe? Maybe. Season three? I don't remember when we talked about this. Feels like ages ago. Uh, but then again, so does two weeks ago always. So, um, I, We had talked about the Druidine, the Pukum, you know, the, the wild men, the Wozes, and the Hobbits. Both of them, I mean, they're both sub-races of men, and we wanted both of them to have, we want to explain, Tolkien never explains the development of, like, the evolution of these sub-races of men. That's never explained by Tolkien. Um, and we wanted, not that we were going to explain this in exposition, but we wanted our sort of private story of how this came to be to be the story of a particular one of the Valar who comes and, like, sort of adopts a group of men, like a village or a, 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 a nation or a, a people of men. Um, and they are sort of adapted over time by that, um, uh, by that one of the Valar. So we, we had, we had, we had talked about that. Um, so my question is, when does that happen? As far as planting seeds, Mike, that's my main question. Um, also, who 
do we ever decide who adopts the Druidine? Um, yeah, no, I'm not saying we want to show that on screen. I'm not really, um, I'm not voting for, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just thinking we need to, you know, we need to know when it happens so that if we do need to tease it or plant seeds, as Mike was suggesting in some way, um, uh, it, it can affect how we inter, interject them into the into the timeline, is what I'm saying. Um, or may, um, uh, yeah. Um, oh, Rhiannon says, how does this not interfere with Morgoth and his corruption of men? Oh, easy. Morgoth gets in first. So Morgoth does his thing first. So, like, original sin has already happened, right? Hobbits, hobbits and Druidine are not unfallen. Like, they're not totally uncorrupt. You can tell that hobbits are not uncorrupt. Hobbits are corrupt, right? Uh, I mean, I, like two words, silver spoons, right? Hobbits are corrupt. So, um, uh, like no race that, uh, uh, that like gets a present, goes out back around and comes in by another way to get another present is not unfallen, right? So, or is unfallen. Like they're totally fine. Uh, like clearly, come on now. Um, but, um, but anyway, so yeah, so Morgoth does his thing first, and then men are distributed everywhere, and then it's after that that the Vala adapt, these random Vala adapt random people. Yeah, Nick says one word, ring, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Ask, ask Diagol about that, uh, sure. Um, but anyway, yeah, we're not going to do hobbits for a while yet. Um, clearly, they're not going to enter in in the first age, but the Druidine... Aule suggests himself to me because of the stone connection and the whole carving thing, the whole connection between them and stone statues. Uh, um, uh, no, Rhiannon, it doesn't have to be a Vala. It could be a Maya. I have no objection to that necessarily. Um, uh, and I don't think we need to decide on the Hobbit one. Um, uh, I also don't think we need to get distracted by this right now. Let's say no on the Druidine for season five. Let's not include them in the major plots here. Their arrival can be later, and their introduction can be later. I think we're going to be fine with just introducing the race of men full stop without also then having to say, and here are these weird freak show sub-race of men who are different from the rest of the men. Like, let's establish men in this season, and then we can introduce the different, the more different men uh, in a future season. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Julie, that is interesting. Julie says, L.A. could be interesting, sort of connecting and contrasting with the dwarves, right? Yeah. L.A. has a type, and it is short and squat, right? I'm sorry, that's just how LA likes them, right? Um, but um, anyway, yeah, okay. yeah. No, I, I could see that, Stephen. I could see the Druidine arriving sort of offstage during season six. So after the Baron and Luthien story, when, like, we re return to the rest of Beleriand, right, the Druidine have arrived. Makes sense to me. Um, yep, yep. Um, 
Absolutely. But no, we know, I'm sorry, someone is asking this and I forgot who it was before. We do definitely know that the Druidine, the, the Woeses, were in Beleriand. There are, there are stories of this, uh, the story of the Faithful Stone uh, in Unfinished Tales. And of course, they're going to get to Numenor, the Druidine. Um, so they need to be in Beleriand in order to get to Numenor, uh, too. So, um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, but let's not, let's, let's not worry about the Druidine anymore. Great question, but I'm done talking about that. Um, okay, so... I feel like the trajectory of Holith's people and sort of the themes of Holith's people are pretty clear just from the outline that we were giving, you know, that, that you've given here and that we were talking about before. Um, my question is just thinking more about what she personally accomplishes, but honestly, just kind of showing the, um, the journey uh, through non-Dungortheb non, non and how, like, how is it that Holith gets the people through? There's a story there, several stories there, right? The strength of her will, yeah, but what does that mean? Like, what does that look like day to day? You know, what does that look like on the ground? Um, we can show that. We can show her heroism. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's, we've got some, uh, um, some possibilities there. Um, yeah, Marie, good. Freedom and independence and strength and adversity and commitment to fighting evil. Um, yeah, you're right. She's uh, not pro-elf, but she's anti-orc, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, no, there are lots of good things we can establish with the Haladin. And I, the Haladin give us a wonderful opportunity to show, like, being one of the good guys among the humans doesn't mean licking the boots of the elves. <laughs> like, you don't have to be a toady in order to... I'm not dissing Beor. I love Beor. He's great. I'm not saying that we, sh you know, we, we make Beor uh, a spineless sycophant. I'm just saying... Um, I know people whose reaction to Tolkien in general is like, oh, the elves are all awesome in every way and the humans are a second fiddle every time, right? Um, and if, somebody's if somebody has that reaction to Tolkien, it is very hard to convince them out of it, right? It's possible, but it's very difficult because there is a very great deal of textual evidence that they can bring to, their, to the defense of their position, right? is what I'm saying. Uh, so I totally uh, think that Haleth gives us a really fun opportunity to show just a different breed of good guy among the humans. Um, uh, you know, not untroubled, right? I mean, not uncomplicated. Um, Haleth can have her rough edges, you know? Um, there can be things that are not 100% awesome about Haleth, but, you know, she is awesome, but in a very different mold from Beor or Hador or any of the rest of them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, that argument, the elves aren't always awesome. Look at the Feanorians. I often try to start there. But again, if somebody has that, like, sense already, it gets hard to talk them out of it. Even if you can prove provide negative examples of elves behaving badly, right? It's still hard to talk uh, people out of that view. I know, Marie, I knew Marie was going to, to bridle at that, right? I know, I know, Marie, you love the fan audience. It's not that there's nothing to love about them, uh, but uh, there we go. Okay, um, let me 
be responsible now and go back to the House of Hador because it's more complicated. It's that middle ground, right? Again, we got Bayor on one extreme, Haleth on the other extreme, and the House of Hador in the middle. Um, okay. Let me su- uh, sum up the history of this whole group of people. They dither around for a long time, and then Hador commits. <laughs> there's my there's my one sentence summary of the trajectory of this house. Um, we can do better. <laughs> we can do better there than that, right? I'm not saying that summary needs to be our guiding principle. Um, what I would kind of like to do is. Uh, Make sure, yes, Murray, we have to make sure that we make a story out of the dithering, right? That it's not just, uh, um, it, uh, we've got Haleth doing her thing and Beor doing his thing. The people of Amlach, as I'm kind of thinking of them, need to be doing, need, need to have a thing that they're doing, right? And if being indecisive or being divided among themselves is the thing that they're doing. That's okay. We just need to make sure that we're embracing that as a story um, and that we make an interesting story out of that and we connect it both. We we make it correspond in interesting ways with the story of Beor and the story of Haleth and that we make it, you know, a good and uh, 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 sensible part of the overall story of the, of the, of the season. Um, uh, yeah, good. Exactly, Nick. Like we did with Elway's people on the journey to Valinor. We didn't want the Teleri just to look like the group of elves with shorter attention spans than the other groups of elves, right? We gave them good reasons for doing what they did. Whenever a group stopped, there was a story why they stopped, right? Um, and uh, and I, I mean, I love what we did with, like, Lenway and the Ents. That was cool, right? You know, the, the forefather of the green elves. It was neat. Um, uh, so anyway, that's, that's cool. Um, but, uh, anyway, so to me, the difficult time is the first, because at the end of the day, like, Hador is the turning point. Hador goes to, uh, goes to Hithlam, and he allies himself with Fingon and, uh, and Fingolfin, right? He's all in on being part of the elves' war. Uh, so once we get to Hador, they've made a decision. So again, one of the stories that it seems to me it is incumbent upon us to tell, what changes? How do we go from dithering to commitment on Hador's part, right? And one potential answer uh, to that, of course, is maybe this is part of the whole false Amlock impersonation plot, right? Mike, what you were thinking about that you have in mind there, maybe that's a big part of it. Um, but we need to have that be the story, the story of how they came to commit. But even after they commit, they do end up committing similarly to the house. Like they end up on the house of Bayor side of the spectrum, right? They don't go the Haleth direction. They go the Bayor direction. But the quality of their connection to the elves is, is not the same, right? Bayor names himself vassal. Um, Hador is called peer of the elves, right? He's, he allies himself to the elves like an equal. And they accept him and respect him like an equal. Um, so that, what's the story? 
there? How does that come about? This is where Hador for me is still a puzzle. Uh, again, I'm okay with having young Grandpa Hador still being in charge and dying in the Dagor Bragalach, but this is why I kind of want Hador in the first... I feel like the culmination of the story of this people in the first half, you know, the, the first generation of this people has to... Like, Hador has to come into that, right? If he's going to be the turning point, if Hador Goldenhead is going to be the champion and hero who leads the the house forward in this decision, in this direction, getting the dragon helm, Rihanna, and absolutely a really important symbol there, right? Um, he he kind of has to be around. I mean, it, maybe he's a kid, right? Maybe we have, like, teenage Hador um, leading his people, right? So we have very youthful leader Hador um, at the beginning, at the end of the first half. And then we have uh, seasoned, rugged, advanced age Hador still leading the people. Um, uh, and so Hador becomes a, a sort of a bridge between the two. Um, if Hador were to receive the dragon helm at a young age, like if he were to, to show, demonstrate heroic leadership and earn the respect of Fingolfin and Fingon um, at the age of like 15 or something like that, which keep in mind, totally realistic for human warrior cultures, right? Um, uh, yeah, Rhiannon, exactly. Hador could be a, uh, uh, could be a kid and a leader without his dad being dead. Yeah. Well, I don't know even who his dad is necessarily, but, um, uh, in this scenario, I mean, um, and what, how we like what the relationship between the Amlach story and the Hador story is. I don't see that really clearly yet myself. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, Marie says, so I'm saying teen Hador takes part in the council in the row of Mag in the role of Magor. Uh, yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. That's just what I'm saying. Um, I would kind of like his role in establishing his young leadership and his worthiness to be granted the dragon helm of Dor Loman. Uh, I would kind of like that to be more than just speaking up at council and leading a march. Right, leading a a a, a, a you know a, a a journey, um, I, there should be more than that. It should be oh, somewhat more dramatic. He needs to do. And by the way, here's another angle that I really like on um, having Hador be really young when he earns the respect of uh, of the elf lords. Here's what I like about that. It, it that serves as a kind of um, uh, companion piece to Beor, right? That is Beor is important because he's old, right? He gets old. He's bare the old and he's, uh, uh, he dies of old age and he's the first one they see die of old age. And it's a big deal. Hador, uh, if Hador wins respect as a youth, right? So they will meet him. Like the elf Lords will meet him. And he's this, he's a kid. Like they know that even for humans, he, even the humans consider him young and the elves consider all the, I mean, they're going to have a really hard time adapting, right? They are used to, kids like you're a kid until you're like 50 right so like when the humans are like how old are you anyway and they're like i'm 45 and they're like oh so you're almost old enough to vote now right i mean like that's like they're gonna have a hard time understanding the like you know mayfly like existence of human beings right so hador would like re um it would uh he would 
force a kind of recalibration by the elf lords, right? The elf lords, even elf lords who are beginning to take humans seriously, would not take Hodor seriously. Because they're like, seriously, this guy, like, is he potty trained? Seriously, people? Like, is, I mean, that's going to be their perspective on young Hodor, right? And instead, young Hodor does something really cool and heroic, probably in battle, certainly in leadership and self-sacrifice and nobility of spirit. And they're like, holy cow, like, even this kid who, like, is not even shaving, uh, well, that's a bad example because the elves are all most, mostly like that, too, we were saying. But whatever. And the point is, they're going to be like, wow, OK, again, like we, we've got to recalibrate. We don't understand humanity, clearly, and we need to get. So they give their respect to Hador, even though he's like 14 or 15 or whatever. Right. Uh, anyway, that's that. That's my first idea for a Hador story and uh, um, and how that could kind of work. I, I have no idea how he's necessarily connected with the Amlock story. Don't really know how the Amlock story is going to play out. That's all stuff that we can kind of figure out. But um, but if that's the basic trajectory, right, the uh, Amlock is the major figure in the dithering section, right? And the culmination of the dithering section is the impersonation, Amlock's change of heart, uh, and then he goes one way, that is to Mithros and Hador leads the rest of the people or most of the rest of the people or many of the rest of the people in the other way and goes to Dor Loman. End of story. And then, of course, we come back with Grandpa Hador still around, still wearing the dragon helm uh, and uh, Hurin and whether or not, you know, we have, you know, some New Zealand extra playing Galdor or not. I don't know, but... Um, uh, but we can decide that as we go. Anyway, that's my that's my thought about the House of Hodor. But as I say, I'm really wide open and totally open to suggestions for compelling stories and storylines that people want to build uh, in uh, uh, in the story of Hodor. B- between between Amlak and Hurin, I'm still pretty open uh, to suggestions there. Well, we're getting pretty late. Uh, and I know we started late as usual, but uh, uh, we're going long here. I wanted to finish talking about the, in a little more detail, working through the storylines with the men. We've got some more things uh, to think through in some more detail. And, of course, we haven't really talked about major, th- like, what are our dominant themes going to be? We're going to okay. talk about the frame. So we still have several more, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, pre-production sessions that we need to have before we start working through the episode by episode uh outlines and stories um but um naturally yeah but that's okay there's lots to talk about and there's lots that we we, and heck i even like resisted completing the discussion about the druidine right that's that's something that was that was a that was a like a Herculean. Act it was of right, self-control. right. Do I get a dragon helm for that? Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a little bit heroic. Okay, all right. So I'm gonna. So we've got other things, right? We didn't get back to the elves, right? Okay, more elves, right? The Aravel story. So <laughs> yeah, much to talk really about. Get to the elves. Dagor Bragalak. Yep, we need to talk about the Dagor Bragalak and some things which we don't know which season to put them in, and then we get to the theme. So after that, questions for next time include that stuff that we didn't get to, um, and of course we also do need to start thinking about an outline. 
right, to be thinking about a concrete um, working outline to begin our discussions uh, episode by episode through the season. So that's going to be our goal. We'll see if we can get to that next time. If not, we will uh, do it the time after. But hey, season five has just begun and the world is still. And uh, and uh, where else are you going to go? What else are you going to do right now? Come on now. Um, we got plenty of time to think about this. Um, uh, uh, so for those people who are listening to this episode asynchronously five years from now, that was a quarantine joke. It was a 2020 thing. You had to be there anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, okay. Um, great. So next episode will be our next, our next session will be on Thursday, April 8th at 10 PM, two weeks from now. Um, uh, so, uh, thanks everybody, uh, for joining us tonight. And I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed. All right. I like the idea of having to explain the quarantine joke. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm more and more sensitive to that because like, you know, people will like write me and they're like, Oh, I'm just starting some film now. So when we're recording these now, I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> more and more true. of the, like anytime we have content, like totally contemporary, I don't even mind things like the announcements because like, we'll probably still be doing myth moot in five years. So, you know, like uh, that we were talking about the myth moot of that year is fine, but, but yeah, like, contemporary events like even big events like you know coronavirus and the quarantine is uh something that's gonna yeah it's no guarantee it'll stick in people's brain yeah well i mean they'll remember that it happened but i mean it will be like trying to explain 9-11 to my kids you know i mean it's uh i'm sure many of you have had those kind of like it's hard to imagine what the effect was like if you weren't there, right? Uh, trying to explain like the day, like where you were when you saw, you know, nine eleven in the first footage of nine eleven. Like it's it's tough explaining that to kids born as mine were in two thousand three and two thousand eight. You know, I mean, it's just so. And there will come a day, the day will come when uh, trying to explain to them about the coronavirus quarantines is going to be uh, a similar situation. That's um, true, but. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, all right. So, um, awesome. Thanks everybody. I look forward to a vigorous discussion. You know, I would emphasize to those of you, you know, uh, those of you, I know there's many of our, uh, stalwarts on the discussion board and major contributors who are here with us tonight. Wonderful to have you, of course, as always main thing I would emphasize there again. Um, please always remember that even when I'm making declarations and stuff, I'm open to, I'm open to discussion. I I don't want to like keep going over the same thing again and again. Like that's my main thing. Like I, I because again, remember the podcast episodes, I, I do have this wider audience that I'm thinking about. Right. And they're not going to want to hear me try to convince the same people of the same things eight times. Right. So I'm not going to just like go back over it again and again and again. Um, but I am open to suggestions and I can change my mind. And, and again, like think of good stories. There's a lot of this. That's, um, I, I feel like sometimes in the history of, uh, the relationships between us, the exec team and you guys discussing things on the discussion board, there have been sometimes that you have taken for like set in stone declarations, which were brainstorming at the time, you know? Um, so yeah, 
I'm I'm open to uh, I'm I'm always open to hearing things. I won't always be opening to like to open to reopening the the same argument again and again. But yeah, I'm I'm I really value your contributions, uh, and I have loved so many of your suggestions and thoughts over time. Uh, and I I, I really uh, am interested to hear what uh, you have to say about these things. Um, but um, but also keep yeah. in mind we are going to murder your favorite character or compress them out of the story. Probably true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, um, yeah, <laughs> it's good. It's, it's good. These things are going to happen. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks Dave for undermining me. That was great. I appreciate that. <laughs> bet. Bet. <laughs> uh, here I had this positive message going and then Dave is like, uh, yes, but we will kill your hopes and dreams without remorse. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, I, this is going to be a lot of fun. I am, uh, uh, I can't wait for next time. This, uh, this whole project is such a refreshment in this time, I have to say. So, yeah. And you're right, Marie, it is the Silmarillion. Everybody dies tragically, including your hopes and dreams. So, you know, uh, it's just just think of uh, just think of uh, just think of it that way. Right. They're just uh, it's just it's like the Silmarillion all over. Anyway. OK, thanks, everybody. Good night now. See you guys later. See you guys in two weeks. Good night.